This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 193, Red. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Red means many things to many people, from love to KFC to the sake left in a load of whites that one time. Red coats the Bible as well, from Esau's bowl of that red stuff to the rider on the red horse to the blood of Jesus. This week we cover the messages God circles in red, the red lights the signal go and step stop, the red-headed preacher and killer who became a country music legend, and how Russian communists tried to destroy religion left enough behind to inspire a terrific board game. We'll start with what I've been preaching. There's just something about the color red, isn't there? It's an attention grabber. It worked for the Nazis. It works for retailers who have just lowered their prices. It works now for pretty much every fast food chain you can think of. Scientific studies have verified it. The color red touches our brains in a way unlike any other. I cannot speak definitively on whether God designed the laws of physics that way deliberately, or whether he planned for remarkable weather to be specifically signaled by displays of red in the sky. But I do know that by Jesus' time, it was well known enough to become a proverb. Matthew 16 verses 1 through 4 records how the Pharisees and Sadducees came asking for what they called a sign from heaven some unmistakable message from on high that could not be ignored or misinterpreted. And Jesus told them in so many words, there's no such thing. He had provided one sign after another. A voice from heaven had trumpeted out the message of Jesus' identity in front of many witnesses and would do so two more times before Jesus' time was through. So instead of giving them a sign they would only ignore, he gave them a parable and a warning. When it is evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? We have paraphrased Jesus' words over the centuries. Generally, now it goes, red sky at morning, sailors take warning, red sky at night, sailors delight. I actually took the time to look the saying up, and sure enough, everyone credits it to Jesus' words in Matthew 16. What's more, people who should know have affirmed that the weather phenomenon to which Jesus refers is actually a very strong tendency, at least in latitudes proximate to Bible lands. I read a paragraph explaining the science behind it all, and it sounded quite sciencey, so I'm sure it's true, as are all sciencey things on the internet. The long and short of it is this. God marks things in red for the same reason we mark things in red, to draw special attention to something of importance. A sailor like Peter, for instance, would do well to pay attention to weather patterns, so as to avoid hazardous conditions as much as possible. Bibles often mark the words of Jesus by putting them in red letters, indicating they are remarkably important and worthy of attention. I would argue that all words revealed through the Spirit are God's words and therefore are of equal spiritual value, but we'll talk about that another time. If a mother writes a note in red reminding a young child to do something, the child's more likely to take note of it. Whether the child pays heed to the message, that's another story. And that's the point Jesus was making in Matthew 16. God is sending you opportunities to go forward instead of backward, up instead of down. And he deserves all the thanksgiving there is that he does that. But then it is up to me to read the signs for what they are and then move in the appropriate direction. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, that the doers of his will enter the kingdom, not just those who hear about it. The most important red imagery in the Bible, of course, is in Isaiah 1, 18. Come now And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. 
Sin is like red dye on your favorite white shirt. What once was perfect is now noticeably and irredeemably flawed. And our best efforts are likely to only make the problem worse instead of better. What a blessing to have true forgiveness in Jesus. And even more than that, to be invited into the presence of God for a consultation on the matter. Yes, your sins are terrible. Yes, they will separate you from your God, as Isaiah goes on to state in chapter 59, verse 2. But God's laundry service works far better than yours or mine. And what a beautiful paradox that it requires the application of the blood of Jesus to make it so, which flowed just as red as yours or mine. All the signs are there. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Grace is free. It's all there in red letters for you. All that remains is for you to pay heed to the warnings and then respond accordingly. You can do that. Underline that last sentence in red. This is what I've been reading. I have been on quite a losing streak with regard to so-called inspirational books I have read for this podcast. And then I read Redefining Red by Electia Hart. And I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Surprise, a winner. The usual caveats apply, as my friend Chris Emerson likes to say. For instance, she is far more charismatic than I am, meaning she believes in personal communication between the spirit and the individual in the modern day. Given her previous career in TV journalism, it's quite likely that she's more charismatic than me in the conventional sense as well, but that's neither here nor there. Now she co-pastors a church, again, caveats, alongside her husband in Omaha, Nebraska. The message of her book is that often the signals we see and interpret as red lights need to be reinterpreted as green lights. That is, we turn excuses to stop into motivation to keep going. That may very well be horrible advice in certain circumstances, while literally driving a car, for instance. And she would be quick to agree. But in some situations, we need to conquer fear and inhibitions instead of surrendering to them. Ms. Hart might think God's messages are a bit more specific and targeted than I would tend to think, but we wind up getting to basically the same place. Does your boss say your work isn't good enough? Don't quit. Do your job better. Your life goes in an unexpected direction? Don't despair. Face your new horizon with hope and determination. God's blessings aren't arriving on schedule? Don't lose your faith. Redouble your faith. Or re-examine the plan God has for you, or both. In any case, don't abandon a good cause just because it gets harder than you expected it to be. She tells a great story about when she was working in sports television and was interviewing one of the Los Angeles Lakers back in the 1990s. She had to wait until practice was over and well afterward to have the conversation. And before, during, and after the interview, she heard a ball bouncing on the court. She figured it was just the janitor or some civilian living out a dream. When the interview was over, she went to check it out, and she found out it was an 18-year-old rookie player named Kobe Bryant. Maybe you've heard of him. She found it remarkable that someone just a few months out of high school would be putting in that sort of effort after hours. She smiled at the young man and called out, Practice is over, Kobe. He simply smiled back and replied, It's never over. Imagine what would have happened if Paul had stopped at every red light. Like when he had to get into a basket and be lowered down the side of a city wall in Damascus to avoid his detractors. Like when he had to deal with a heckler in Cyprus while preaching to Sergius Paulus. Like when he got stoned in Lystra and left for dead. Would you have interpreted any of those events as indications, perhaps from God himself, that you'd chosen the wrong line of work? But of course, Paul knew he was on the right path, 
because Jesus had told him personally what path to take. And perhaps even told him more than that. Certainly Jesus told Ananias, who was commanded to baptize Paul in Damascus, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake in Acts 9 verse 16. And if Paul didn't get the message on that particular occasion, he likely got it eventually. Maybe this was part of the thorn in the flesh he wrote about in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. If so, he got an entirely different sort of red light in response. Stop praying about this, Jesus told him. You're not trusting in me enough. I will see you through these trials. And that's what Paul did, what eventually he learned to take pride in doing. For when I am weak, then I am strong, he wrote. It's better to lean on the Lord a little more and go through the red lights then take the comfortable, convenient path of the quitter, if for no other reason than to have the blessing of a deeper, fuller relationship with the Lord and Savior who provides the strength and comfort we need. Sometimes red means stop and nothing more, but not always. If we can reprogram our minds to see adversity as a challenge instead of an excuse, if we can push through the pain, we may emerge on the other side with a sense of victory and accomplishment that we never would have had if we'd settled for the easy way. And God's way is rarely easy. Simple, yes, but rarely easy. That's why he calls laborers into his field instead of just warm bodies. That's why Paul tells us in Philippians 2.12 to work out our salvation instead of sitting still and waiting for God to drop it on our heads. So start running some of those red lights. Be the worker God has called you to be, the worker Jesus has empowered you to be. This is what I've been hearing. I'm not really a Willie Nelson fan. I keep telling myself that. Growing up in Austin, of course, I was exposed to the famous outlaw country music legend on the regular. And all I heard as a youngster was a whiny voice and a twangy guitar. It's easy to make broad generalizations when you're a child. So anyway, I grew up fully aware of Red-Headed Stranger, the 1975 album that made Willie a superstar. But I would never listen to a full Willie Nelson album, no matter how many people told me to. So on I moved into adulthood, still pushing Willie's music to the periphery of my consciousness. And eventually I started likening my dislike of Willie to my dislike of the late Tom Petty. I don't like Tom Petty either. Except I like Free Fallin' and Stop Dragging My Heart Around and running down a dream, eventually I came to realize, you know what, maybe I do like Tom Petty after all. Same with Willie Nelson. I love his work with the Highwaymen. Always on my mind is amazing. So is Good-Hearted Woman and the rest of his collaborations with Waylon Jennings. So, staring the Red episode down the barrel, it seemed the right time to break down and give Red-Headed Stranger a listen. And I haven't turned it off since. Red-Headed Stranger is a concept album focusing on a preacher who discovered his wife cheating on him with another man and subsequently shot them both and spent the rest of his life dealing with the consequences. The Time of the Preacher, the first song, sets the scene, introducing his character, his marriage, and his concerns. I couldn't believe it was true describes his shock and sadness in the moment. He catches up with the adulterous couple in Blue Rock, Montana, and they died with a smile on their faces. Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, which became Willie's first big hit, was actually an old song sung by Hank Williams and a host of others. In Red-Headed Stranger, it becomes a heartbreaking lament for the woman who broke his heart and who he obviously still loves. The title track tells how he shot a yellow-haired lady for touching his dead wife's horse. 
Will God understand, he seems to ask, through an instrumental version of Just As I Am. Can I sleep in your arms is a futile search for comfort after true love is lost. You get the idea. The preaching is over and the lesson's begun, says the preacher in the beginning. That is, the preacher has a story to tell us. But the tune comes back after the affair is discovered and the preacher tweaks the line. Now the lesson is over and the killing's begun. So the lesson seems to be, life is unfair. Life will disappoint. Be on your guard at all times. But the killing is not a necessary result of the lesson. It's a choice the redheaded stranger makes on his own. And feel free to insert your favorite generalization about redheads and temper here. The redheaded stranger never faces the full legal consequences of his actions. The fact that a preacher should know a greater judgment awaits him should go unstated, but I'll state it anyway, just for the record. I'll spend a bit more time on the disconnect between the lessons learned and the remedy pursued. I'd like to think another unstated truth here is that murder is sinful, regardless of the motivation. Again, I'll state it anyway. But if we're patting ourselves on the back for avoiding cold-blooded murder in our moments of wrath, we're likely letting ourselves off a bit easy. Be angry and sin not, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.26. Not be angry and murder not. If life has taught us an important lesson, that's a blessing. But we're not entitled to take that lesson and use it to justify the behavior of our own choosing. Anything that produces sin in us cannot possibly be from God. So if a personal tragedy of some sort produces anger in us, we are obligated to turn that in a direction that is productive both for us and for society in general. Looking more closely at the context of Ephesians 4.26 should give us some ideas. A series of not-but phrases follow closely, requiring us to focus less on the first option, which might seem to be the natural response, and focus more on the second, which is the godly response. Don't steal, he writes. Instead, work with your hands and then share with others. Don't speak unwholesome words. Instead, speak words that will build people up. Be a giver of grace, not grief. After all, that's what God did for us. All of this falls under the heading of Paul's words in verse 27. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Your anger is a gateway to sin, just like your lust, your ego, your selfishness, and every other sinful impulse you may have. Master it, to use God's warning to Cain in Genesis 4-7. Cain didn't, as you well know. But you can, and you must. Yes, the right choice is often the difficult one. But when did God ever tell us his path would be easy? If serving God scratched all your personal itches, anyone could do it. You can do this only if you are deliberately and consistently trying to conform to the image of Jesus, a la Romans 12.2. And even then, it's no picnic. It's worth it in the end, though. Don't take my word for it. Take Peter's from 1 Peter 4.15-19. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 
Willie Nelson's advice with regard to people like the redheaded stranger is repeated throughout the album. Don't boss him. Don't cross him. He's wild in his sorrow. He's rioting and hiding his pain. Don't fight him. Don't spite him. Just wait till tomorrow. Maybe he'll ride on again. For better or for worse, I'm not going to let either of us off that easy. Don't just ride off in your anger or whatever other sinful impulse you may be fighting. Resist it and let me know how I can help. This is what I've been playing. St. Basil's Cathedral was built in Moscow's Red Square in the 16th century by Ivan the Terrible. Originally, it was eight separate chapels surrounding a ninth, each with a brightly colored dome at the top, each one a different height. It was intended to represent a bonfire, sacred smoke ascending to heaven from the capital city of a highly religious nation. The communists changed all that, of course, but thankfully they left the structure intact. It served various secular purposes until Orthodox services were reestablished in 1997. You have the opportunity to build St. Basil's on your own gaming table, as it were, with The Red Cathedral, a compact yet complex game that has become a favorite in the Hammond's house. We even got Kylie to play it a week or two ago. In the game, several columns of cards are displayed, representing the spires of the cathedral. Your job is to supply the wherewithal to construct the various parts of the various spires, for which you will receive honor and glory, of course. But you also have the opportunity to decorate any section that has been completed, whether you are the one to complete it or not. Fancy doors, windows, and dome toppers add to the prestige of the particular spires in question. In the end, whoever did the lion's share of the building will get the lion's share of the credit, as with any proper board game. The one who has earned the most credit in the entire cathedral construction project is given accolades and riches commensurate with your services to the nation. The others, in true Ivan the Terrible fashion, get their heads chopped off. Just kidding. Several spires combining to form a single place of worship. You won't be surprised that reflecting on this particular game this week caused me to think of the body of Christ. In fact, it's very reflective of the truths given to us by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, where he describes what the unity of the Spirit actually looks like. He begins in verse 4 by writing, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Just one, he says, over and over again. And the first unity mentioned is the one body. Paul already identified the body as the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, in Ephesians 1, and 23. Peter calls the same body a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, in 1 Peter 2, 5. In 1 Timothy 4, 15, Paul refers to the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Jesus spoke of how various sheep would come under his oversight and they will become one flock with one shepherd in John 10, 16. You get the idea by now. There's a single system, a single organization, a single organism that is alone fit and authorized to bring spiritual sacrifices before the throne of God above. We usually call it the church. The Bible may refer to it as a temple to emphasize the worship that takes place therein, or a kingdom to emphasize the relationship of us as citizens under King Jesus, or a flock of sheep to emphasize our dependence on our shepherd. It all revolves around the same principle. If you want to approach God, this is where you must be. The body analogy presupposes members, 
And Paul plays with that extensively in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Everyone has a part to play. These roles will differ widely, but everyone is important. And ultimately, whether you are gathering materials or installing windows, we are privileged to be part of the work, and that's all that matters. Getting back to our original text, we see as Ephesians 4 develops that the Holy Spirit empowered certain ones to serve in certain capacities in the body. He mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But the list could go on to include countless other roles. Some formal, some informal. Some specifically male or female, young or old, some not. The important thing is not the individual role, and it's certainly not the individual Christian. It is, as he writes in verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What an amazing word picture. It's as though God is turning the whole lot of us into a gigantic Jesus statue. Every piece plays a part, but none of us is what we ought to be. So we combine our efforts, not only in upward-facing worship, but also in sideways-facing service. The body is not what it should be if every member is not what he or she should be. So we work together, you working on me, me working on you, and the more we work together, the closer we get to the unity of the faith in the fullest sense of the word. And it makes me see red, pardon the pun, when we reserve all our praise for the so-called important things and the so-called important people who do them. I don't care if you're a one-talent Christian, a five-talent Christian, or anywhere in between. You are important. You couldn't be more important. You are playing a part in the most important construction project in human history, building the body of Jesus Christ. So pick up your tools, whatever they may be, and get to work. Jesus needs you. Your brethren need you. Nehemiah, describing the people who were building up Jerusalem many centuries ago, said in Nehemiah 4, 6, the people had a mind to work. May the same be said for God's builders today. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.